If you're visiting, if you're new, massive, massive welcome. We're in a teaching series. This is part two of the teaching series. That The series is entitled The Beauty of the Gospel. Last week, we looked at the message of the gospel. Over the next six, seven weeks, we're going to be looking at the roots of the gospel proclamation and the fruit of the gospel proclamation. So what is the message that was last week? And over the next few weeks, what is the fruit of the gospel? When the gospel is proclaimed and received, What fruit does it bring about in someone's life? And today we're going to zoom in on forgiveness. I want to tell a story um, that hopefully will illustrate some of the journey we're going to go on. So imagine the scene. This is a true story. Imagine the scene where I'm driving with a mate. Um, he's next to me in the car. It's his car. We're driving to a festival and we decided we'd we'd share the driving. So I'm in the driver's seat. He's in the passenger seat. It's his car. And we're going down very, very windy country lanes in Somerset. And we get to this one hill. We're ascending the hill. I'm going in terms of speed, approximately 29 miles per hour. In other words, below the limit. Um, At least that's what I said to the insurance company afterwards. So I'm going up the hill, at the top of the hill, there's a very, very sharp left turn, right? And we're approaching the sharp left turn. And as we get close to the turn, I see a Land Rover coming towards us at speed. I'm guessing maybe 35 miles per hour. In other words, over the limit. And that's what I told the insurance company. So so they're going over the limit. We're just under the limit. And by the time I see them, I whack on the brakes and they rack on the brakes. And you can hear this like, bang. Something like that. It's probably a bit louder than that. Um, And as soon as we have this impact, there is silence. For about 30 seconds, but it feels like a couple of hours. And at the end of 30 seconds, I turn towards my mate and say, I'm so sorry about the car. And then he's silent. And he's probably processing, what do I do right now? And then after about 30 seconds, it felt like a couple of hours, he said, I forgive you, Pete. I was like, that's good. So I step outside the car and I examine the car and it's not in good shape. Like the bumper is basically destroyed. The bonnet has caved in. I look at the Land Rover and I look at the grill on the front of the Land Rover. There's not even a scratch. Can't even identify a scratch. So I stand looking at our car or my mate's car looking at their car just wondering how this could possibly have happened basically the car was a total write-off so we had to push the car into a random field and then we had to do the walk of shame back to the nearby village and phone to get a lift it was a humiliating experience there is a point to the story right the point of the story is something like this Forgiveness enabled this moment of reconciliation between me and my friend, which was beautiful. But him forgiving me in that moment did nothing for the car, right? As far as I know, there is still a car written off in a field somewhere in Somerset. So there was reconciliation in the relationship, but there's some collateral from that moment, i.e. the car. Now, some of us have a theology of the cross a little bit like that. A theology of the cross that's big enough to deal with our sin and maybe reconcile us to the Father and maybe reconcile us to one another, but it's not big enough to deal with collateral. 
It's not big enough to deal with the brokenness that we see all around us. This is what one theologian said. Some of us have a theology of the cross that's big enough to forgive sin, but too small to restore creation. Big enough to cover the offence, but too small to repair the damage, i.e. the car. Big enough to pardon the crime, but too small to transform the criminal. But the good news of the cross is that Jesus has more than just forgiven sins. He's overcome all that would stand in opposition to his kingdom and purposes to restore all things, right? So hopefully in about 45 minutes time, when I finish this, that's a joke, 25, 30 minutes time, we'll have a bigger understanding of the cross, a more beautiful understanding of the cross. So we looked at this question briefly last week, why did Jesus die? And we basically said there is a theological answer to that question and there's a historical answer to that question. The theological answer to the question, which we looked at briefly from 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says that that Christ died for our sins according to to the scripture right so when people say why did Jesus die the standard response is he died for my sin he died for our sins that's a theological answer but there is a historical answer to the question why did the Romans kill Jesus why did the Jewish authorities want Jesus taken out and the answer is because he was claiming to be a revolutionary king ushering in a whole new kingdom a kingdom that wasn't from here but was from above and it posed a threat to the Roman authorities it posed a threat to the Jewish authorities and they wanted to get rid of Jesus this heavenly realm was breaking into the here and now so why did Jesus die to forgive Give sins and because he was ushering in, inaugurating a new kingdom. Now, what theologians have often failed to do over 2,000 years of church history is to put these two together. That the forgiveness of sins means a curse that is upon us. That curse is broken. And because the curse is dealt with, the blessings of the kingdom fall upon us, right? So we're going to unpack this movement. Curse being broken, blessings beginning to fall. So this journey then from decreation, which is the created order that's unraveled through sin, towards recreation, the new creation, which is the restoration of how things were meant to be, that journey can only take place through a reversal of disorder. In other words, the chaos needs to be dealt with and then a renewal of order. In other words, there needs to be judgment of evil. Evil needs to be dealt with and then there needs to be restoration of life. So if you read all the prophets throughout the Old Testament, they're all pointing towards Jesus and they're all pointing towards the cross and they're all essentially saying the same thing. There needs to be judgment. Evil needs to be dealt with. Darkness needs to be dealt with. But beyond judgment, there is restoration. There is new life. There is a new creation waiting for us. So let me tell you two stories, micro stories in the Old Testament that point towards the macro story. The first one is Noah's Ark, right? The animals went in two by two, hurrah, hurrah. Anyone remember that? No, just me. Okay, tough crowd. Anyway, Noah's Ark, remember the story. So Noah and his family get on board this massive, massive boat, the Ark, and they take two of every species on the Ark with them. And what's the point of the story? The point of the story is recreation. Or more specifically, the journey from decreation to recreation. The floods come and the floods are judgment on evil. So evil can be dealt with, right? The floods take out the evil that had filled the earth. But then the floods subside, 
right? And Noah and the family get out of the boat and they repopulate the earth. In other words, new creation, judgment leading to restoration. And then Noah enters into a covenant relationship with God, which is really a restoration of the covenant between Adam and Eve and God. Judgment, restoration. Judgment, restoration. Second story, the Exodus narrative. So Moses is standing in front of this mass of water, the evil Egyptian regime chasing them down. And imagine that moment, hearing the sound of like an army chasing after you, like horses coming for you. And then he raises his staff over the waters and the waters part. Yeah, tough crowd. They, they part and they walk through on dry land. Um, they get to the other side and then the waters close in on the Egyptian army, eradicating evil, right? So there is judgment, like evil is dealt with. And on the other side of the ocean, they begin to journey through the wilderness to this land of abundance and they're given the law, right? So that there can be a restoration of order, judgment, Restoration, judgment, restoration. So let's unpack judgment. Now, this is the moment where buttocks tend to tighten as we talk about judgment in the church. So breathe, it's all going to be okay. So when we talk about judgment, there are certain key ingredients we need to understand. But we need to understand these terms, law, justice, sin, wrath. We need to understand these terms biblically. It's loaded language. When you hear justice, when you hear wrath, something comes to mind. It may not be the biblical understanding of these terms. So we're wanting to define these terms according to Scripture. Remember Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. Well done. It's always going to be Scripture if we do that again. According to Scripture. So this is what one theologian says. The inability to define these terms according to the narrative of always going to be scripture, has caused some to place their understanding of the cross within the world of Roman criminal law. Now, basically what a number of theologians have done over the centuries, they've basically said Paul, in his epic book to the church in Rome, is basically talking about the theology of the cross, but he's probably speaking into like a Greco-Roman worldview and therefore operating with a Greco-Roman worldview. So a lot of the terms he's using, he's using those terms in that worldview. And the answer is, like Paul has a Jewish framework, an imagination saturated in the Jewish story, the story of Israel, God's engagement with his people. So when he uses these terms, in the back of his mind is this unbelievable story of God's covenant with his people, right? So the judge who acts at Calvary is not the judge acting according to Roman law, balancing crime with punishment and injury with recompense. Instead, this is the judge of the Old Testament law acting according to the Torah, which is the Jewish law, in order to maintain and restore his covenant relationship with his people. Let me just unpack that, right? When it comes to the Jewish framework for the law, we're talking about restorative justice, not retributive justice. So the Roman framework is retributive justice. Ooh, they've done something wrong. What is an equal punishment to the crime? In the Jewish story, the end goal isn't punishment. The end goal is restoration, the restoration of the covenant. So what kind of punishment will enable there to be restoration for the individual and restoration for the community? So restorative justice should be in the back of your mind. The Jewish law, in other words, the Torah, is about relationship, not control. 
right? Relationship, not control. Covenant, not contract. This is a father adopting a family, sons and daughters into community. Right, so let's talk about sin. Okay, so how do we define sin? Sin is to be defined as more than just transgressing a law, but as rebelling against a person. We said this last week. God is our father in heaven, not a policeman in the sky, right? He gave us the law, but the law is a way of staying in relationship with him, right? So when we sin, this isn't just like transgressing a boundary because this is a relational term, not just a legal one. When we sin, we're basically rejecting God. So Martin Luther defined sin as a life turned in on itself, no longer orbiting around God. We want everything to orbit around us and we reject God. So this is relational language. But when you reject God, who is the source of life, when you walk away from the source of life, you begin to embrace death. So listen to these words, Tom Smale. To rebel against God is to rebel against life. And the judgment of the loving God against the sinner is that he shall be allowed to have his own way until he discovers that the rejection of life can mean nothing but death, right? Often when we talk about sin and therefore our understanding of the cross, we disconnect the crime with the punishment and and we can't work out how the two go together. So I had a prideful thought last night or last week I lied to someone at work or the week before I stole some stationery from the office, from the workplace, right? And we can't piece together how this crime would lead to us deserving to die, but Jesus dying in our place. I stole some stationery, big deal. Why did Jesus have to die, right? And it's because we misunderstand the nature of sin. Sin is basically rejecting God, turning our back on God. This is highly relational. And when you walk away from God, the source of life, you begin to embrace death. You get on a train and there is a collision course with death, which is why Paul says the wages of sin. In other words, the fruit of sin, where sin is taking you, isn't just transgressing a law, it's taking you towards death. It's going to get heavy, by the way. We're going to talk about wrath. Okay, the idea of God getting angry. We need to understand that God's wrath cannot be separated from his love. Like we want a God to be loving, but for God to be loving, he has to get angry. And in our Western materialistic world that idolizes comfort, we're like, we want a nice God, a really loving God. Don't like angry God. Don't like angry God. But for God to be loving, he has to get angry. So listen to these words from N.T. Wright. Um, And if it's N.T. Wright, how can it be wrong? Um, So here we go. The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise and loving creator who hates... Yes, hates and hates implacably anything that spoils, defaces, distorts or damages his beautiful creation. And in particular, anything that does that to his image bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he's neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he's neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully and enslave one another, he's neither loving nor good nor wise." 
right? This is a very Western mindset. I just want God to be really cuddly, nice and loving. Don't like the idea of an angry God, right? But if you ask people living under the terror of a dictator or people living in the middle of an unjust war or who've experienced genocide, what do you think about the idea of God getting angry? What do you think about a God of justice? They'll be like, it's the greatest news ever. Like, I want to know that this evil is going to be judged, either here and now or eternally. I want to know this evil is going to be dealt with. If God is truly loving, he has to get angry. So how does his anger operate? This is Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Therefore, God gave them over. Greek word here. We're going to learn a bit of Greek. Paradidonai. Let's say it together. Paradidonai. Woo, beautiful. Um, Paradidonai. Handed them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Because of this, God paradidonai. Handed them over to shameful lusts. This is basically Paul saying, here's how God's wrath operates. God, who's given us free will, basically says, if you're going to choose evil, you need to learn to live with the fruit of evil, right? You reap what you sow. So I'm going to literally hand you over to live with the consequences of your decisions. One theologian put it like this, we're not punished for our sins, we're punished by our sins. In other words, when we sin and basically say, screw you, to God and we walk in the opposite direction we live with the fruit of those decisions we get on board this train that's heading it's on a collision course with death so again another theologian said it like this judgment is not primarily the retributive inflicting of punishment from the outside you stole stationery from the workplace smite button some of us have this idea of God like just waiting upstairs in heaven smite button stole stationery again smite button Lie to a colleague, smite button. It doesn't work like that. This isn't retributive inflicting of punishment from the outside. Instead, it's God allowing his people to experience the inbuilt consequences of their refusal to live in relationship with him. In other words, to rebel against God is to rebel against life. Like sin isn't a small deal. It's a big deal. It points you in the direction of death. The wages of sin are death, right? That's bad news. There's some good news. Hold on. There's some good news coming. So piece this together. Law and justice. We're talking about restorative justice, not retributive justice. Sin, it's relational, not just legal, not just transgressing a boundary, rejecting a father in heaven. Wrath, because he loves us, he has to be angry at those things that distort and disfigure his image bearers. Put it back together, right? We've said there needs to be judgment and there needs to be restoration. Restoration, judgment, restoration. Okay, so what does this judgment restoration look like? This is the last intense bit of theology, and then it's going to get lighter. So lean in, stick with me. This is quite important. Okay, so the Torah, the Jewish law, clearly stated that covenantal obedience, in other words, walking in footstep, in, in line with God's commands, would lead to blessing, and covenantal disobedience, rejecting the commands, would lead ultimately to the curse of exile and alienation from God. So if you want a scripture for this, this is Deuteronomy 28, where God says, we're going to be in covenant relationship. But if, if you reject me, you're going to break this covenant. And, and the ultimate expression of that is you'll be ruled over by another nation. 
alienation from God and you'll be ruled over. But if you remain in covenant, covenant, all my blessings will fall upon you. That's Deuteronomy 28. Now in the context of the first century then, fast forward into the time of Jesus, Israel were living under such a curse. They had rejected God, broken the covenant, and therefore God had paradidonai, handed them over to live with the consequences of their decisions. Judgment wasn't simply some future event they were anticipating because of their unfaithfulness. It was present and active in the form of Roman oppression. Judgment was all around in the form of Roman taxes, the presence of Roman troops, images of Caesar, and so on. In other words, in the first century, the the people of God weren't waiting for judgment. As they looked around, they're like, we're already under judgment, right? Like we can see signs of the curse, alienation from God being ruled over all around us. Every time they saw a Roman soldier, we're like, we're under judgment. This is a curse. Every time they had to pay taxes to Caesar, they're like, this is judgment and this sucks. This hurts. There is a curse upon us. We need someone to deal with the curse because we were made to live under blessing and our deepest longing is to live under blessing. Is someone going to deal with the curse? According to the narrative, remember Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the Always going to be scripture, it's good. According to the narrative, Christ came to his own people in the place where they were already being justly punished. They were already being punished, right? The curse of exile. And took upon himself the effects of their covenantal disobedience. As Paul states in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Right, that's dense. Let me summarize it in diagrammatic form because I know you guys love diagrams. I love making them. So we've got a good thing going on here. You devour them. I like to create them. We were made for each other. Um, so, So basically, you've got the people in the first century. Are they walking in the light? No, 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 they're walking in darkness. The people walking in darkness, they eventually saw a great light, but they're walking in darkness. The blessings they were created for aren't showering down upon them. In fact, more than that, there is a curse blocking them from the blessings of God. Like every time they saw Roman occupation, they were reminded, we broke the covenant. We walked away from God. Like we rejected him and now we're living with the fruit of that decision. It feels like we're under a curse and we need someone to deal with the curse. We know the ultimate effect of the curse is death. We need someone to deal with the curse and someone to overcome death. And this is what's happening at the cross, right? At the cross, all of the curse is loaded upon one person, God incarnate. God in human flesh, Jesus. All of our sin loaded into one place upon one person, Jesus. And he takes that sin, that curse to the grave and he triumphs over it. And therefore through the cross, we can now live under the blessing. We can now live under the light. That's why Paul says we've been rescued from a kingdom of darkness and transferred into a kingdom of light. This is a journey from dark Darkness to light, death to life. And when you really understand this, like when you really understand the weight of this and what God has done for us, joy rises in your being. And the church historically, when they've grabbed hold of this reality that we've been forgiven of our sins, the curse has been dealt with and blessings can fall upon us, they start to sing because there's so much excitement. We're liberated. We've been set free. Oh, happy day. 
Oh, happy day. Call and response. When Jesus washed. When Jesus washed. This isn't on the live stream. When Jesus washed. Very good, very good. Give yourself a round of applause. The problem is, if you were to visit most churches, particularly in the West, you'd see something like this. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. In other words, we sing so many of these songs, right, as if they're theological truths that we give mental assent to but they're not a living reality. Because when they become your living reality, joy fills your being. When you realise you were once in a kingdom of darkness and now you're in a kingdom of light, that you were dead in your transgressions and you've been made alive in Christ. When that becomes your story, it transforms everything and joy rises in your being. And we're beginning to see some of that at KXE, a greater volume to our worship, a greater joy present in our worship. And I think it's connected to waves of repentance that we're experiencing that my sins have been washed away. That when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because Christ He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Let me close with a story. Now, many of you will know the story of John Newton, the the hymn writer. Um, John Newton was also known as a leader in the slave trade. Um, He had a very dramatic conversion story. Um, And after his conversion, he eventually came to the realisation of just how wicked the slave trade had been and how wicked his involvement in the slave trade was. He was deeply, deeply repentant and became one of the leading abolitionists in this nation. But there's a story of, of how he came to faith, which is pretty incredible, that inspired this hymn, Amazing Grace. So the context for the story, he's on a boat And there is a heavy, heavy storm and he's thinking he's about to die and he's basically trying to sort of like get right in himself, potentially with God, fearing death. Let me read you this account. One night he was wakened by a violent wave crashing against the vessel. Water filled his cabin. Hurrying above, he found that timbers had been ripped away. All were in terrible danger as the ship plunged through a furious storm. Men pumped desperately. Clothes and bedding were stuffed into holes and boards nailed over them. John joined those who were manning the pumps. Too exhausted to pump any longer, he was lashed to the wheel to try and steer the ship. The storm raged on and on. It was bitterly cold, the more so since the men had few clothes left. In this desperate moment, John turned his eyes back over his life. Raised to the age of seven by a Christian mother, he had sought the Lord with fasts and prayers. But failing to find God, he'd become embittered. In his heart, he believed Christianity to be true. This brought him no consolation. Quoting now, I concluded my sins were too great to be forgiven. I waited with fear and impatience to receive my doom. 
But soon he heard the glad news that the ship was freed of water. I began to pray, to think of that Jesus that I had so often derided. I recollected his death, a death for sins, not his own, but, as I remembered, for the sake of those who had put their trust in him. On this day, March 21st, 1747, a day he ever after observed, John realised he needed a saviour to intercede for him with God. He snatched a free moment opened the Bible and began to read. Though the storm raged on for days, John spent every free moment in the scripture praying for guidance. Hungry, cold, exhausted, the men kept the ship afloat. Only one died of exhaustion, but the captain muttered that John ought to be thrown overboard like Jonah. His wickedness was the cause of all their misery, he claimed. Finally, they reached Ireland. By then, John was convinced the Lord had reached down and delivered his soul. The story of the prodigal son seemed to exactly fit his case. He never turned back from that day of his salvation. And that one moment of someone basically recognizing there is evil within me, not just around me. Like I'm, I'm doomed, like I'm not right with God. I'm trapped in darkness. God, help me. And in that moment, God reached down and restored his life and he encountered grace. And off the back of that story, he wrote the famous hymn, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. And 300 years later, we're still singing that refrain that emerged from this one dramatic moment of death to life, darkness to light. You see, this is the amazing thing about our story. When you understand that sin isn't a small deal, it's a big deal. But we have a sufficient Savior who's died for our sins according to the scriptures. In other words, he's dealt with the curse so that the blessings of God might shower upon us. When you understand that, it transforms everything. I don't know if you've ever experienced a moment of like deep, deep regret in your life. We're like, I wish I could just go back. I wish I could wash it away. I, I wish I could remove the stain. Here's the bad news. You can't. You can't. You can't get rid of the stain. You can't get rid of the guilt. You just can't, but there is one who can. When you've experienced a moment where you've wounded a friend or violated somebody else's marriage or, or hurt a family member or, or just done something where you're like, ah, oh, the shame. You can't get rid of the stain, but there is one who can. His name is Jesus. He washes away sin as far as the East is from the West, and those that not just intellectually believe it, but when it becomes their experience, joy rises in their being, and they're like, this is the gospel, and this is why the gospel is so beautiful, the beauty of the gospel. Mm -hmm.